0: Hello, welcome along to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine and this week we're chatting to Claire Davely. Her new novel is Romance, it's uplit, it's called Talking at Night. We talk about her path to publication, working in the industry, dealing with rejections and still cracking on. Also, uh, why she takes time to prepare the mood and the tone and you can hear why she's really stopped thinking about genre.
2: There was a time when I felt like when I was getting a lot of rejections and a lot of the rejections were sort of saying oh these books are too quiet they're beautifully written but we don't know where they'd sit in the market there was a a time when I thought maybe I need to be more strategic and think about genre but then when I did my writing course my tutor thankfully said to me absolutely not get that thought out of your head (laughs) he said just write what you want to write and it will it will come good.
0: There is more on the way with Claire Daverly in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along. My name is Dan Simpson and this is Writer's Routine. If you've never listened before, well, it, it does what it says on the tin, really. That's the plan. I try and chat to as many fantastic authors as I can, bringing you one most weeks. And we just try and learn the secret of their working day we see where when and how they write we just try and take some advice to bring into our own lives to see how we can give ourselves a better chance of getting down a novel Um, and i'm very excited that our sponsors for this show are plotter if you missed the fantastic plotter offer earlier on in the year you can make the most of it now plotter is a writing tool it's a software that like this show does what the title says it plots. It helps you plan your books the way that you think. It lets you outline faster, organise smarter. It really turbocharges your productivity. Now, when you open up the software, this tool, uh, you get a digital court board smack bang in front of you. And on there, you can easily swap between the timeline, the outline, your notes, the details on characters and places. You can tag all of it. You can colour code it, which makes it easier to skim through to find what you need. Imagine the chaos of a notebook with post-it notes sticking out at odd angles. It's all of that, but in front of you in a way that is much easier to manage. It allows you to track the details of your plot at a scene level and switch and swap them however you like. Plotter is a tool that helps you spend more time writing. It's why we've partnered with each other because what I'm doing on this podcast really, to help you spend more time writing so you can carve out that moment, uh, they are doing on the software. They want to strip back the fuss and just present you with what you need because as writers we spend a lot of time faffing around with the window dressing of what is simply getting words down onto a page now the best way for you to see what it does and how stunning it looks and how helpful it can be is by heading to go.plotter.com Uh, slash routine and taking a look around because while you're there right up to the end of the year you can get 10% off the software with this show Uh, so have a look around get the deal use the code it's in the episode notes of this show get to go.plotter.com slash routine let's get into it then with Claire Daverly on the show this week Claire has been writing since she was six years old Uh, she's worked in publishing having a few rejections along the way uh, but carried on Uh, went to school pretty much, and now her novel, Talking at Night, is finally out. It's a love story about Will and Rosie seemingly destined to be each other's great love story until a tragedy shatters their future. It's all about the balance of what is and what could have been. You can hear all about the story, uh, how much she thought about genre whilst writing. We talk about how a recent house move has changed writing for her. Also, how she is dealing with the freedom of a full day to write in. You can hear how uh, writing courses helped push her on to the next level and helped her deal with the rejections that she's faced. Uh, We also chat about the journal that is vital, but is never looked at. And we run through why she takes the time to prepare and get in the right mood with candles, with playlists to find the correct tone. It's all on the way and let's jump into it as we always do with our writers chatting to Claire Daverly, starting with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write.
2: Yeah, of course. So my view out the window has changed quite dramatically this past year um, after I moved house and it was quite a big move from Hertfordshire to Scotland. But um, the desk setup is more or less the same so I guess I'll start there. I work on an old battered Ikea desk which I've had since I was about 12 years old so it's totally stained with kind of ink and pencil lines and rings from all my many mugs of tea and there's like a big rip in the paper surface which reveals the sort of cheap chipboard underneath so it's not a nice or a classy desk but it has served me for over half my life now so I have a lot of affection for it and um On the desk itself, I've got a stack of novels that kind of serve to try and inspire or sort of set the tone for whatever project I'm working on at the time. So right now, those are different to the books that were there when I was writing Talking at Night. I've got a little ceramic dish filled with bits and bobs, so my headphones, some lip balm, a candle, which again changes depending on what I'm writing. So today it is a wild swimming scented candle. Um, I could keep going. There's so much on this very messy desk of mine. Um, I've got a lamp, a pot full of pens, my physical diary, which I would be lost without a stack of papers and notes relating to my current novel, and then a little bit of whimsy too, in the form of a small plastic chameleon that my brother bought me. Um, He acts as my kind of little motivational companion. Sometimes my husband moves him around for fun, but mostly he sits on my desk and smiles at me, kind of like, you got this, which is really nice.
0: (laughs) Uh, listen I'm very interested slightly outside of the writing but you you mentioned this kind of gargantuan change and a move you've made from Hertfordshire to, to Scotland right Mhm yeah I'm, I'm just always curious about how people deal with quite seismic I- I events I'm look let's be fair you're in the same country more or less I, I just it, it's it's a slightly different scenery i would say it is many many hundreds of miles away how have you founding how have you found a, a adjusting yourself to something qu- quite different in the way that you are and and how life changes and your writing changes around the fact that you've had this big move
2: yeah no it's a really good question and it was a bit of a weird one because we were sort of in the process of moving or at least we'd sold our house and we were house hunting before the book deal happened so I was me and my husband had sort of made that decision to kind of move ourselves away from Hertfordshire for for lots of reasons we both had secured remote work and we love Scotland we've always holidayed up here and we kind of always talked about retiring up here and then when we both secured remote work we kind of thought well what are we waiting for you know we love the outdoor lifestyle we love hiking I love wild swimming um, there's a lot more kind of you know space and light and sky up here, so we sort of thought, why not? And if we don't like it, we can always come back. And then the book deal sort of happened more or less a couple of weeks after we'd sold our house, weirdly. And I remember my husband saying to me, "Does this change anything for you?" And I sort of thought, "I don't, I don't think so. If anything." I'll hopefully have a much nicer view to write to. <laughs> so that was, um, we stuck to the plan. And yeah, it's it's very much, it's quite jammy. My my window now looks out onto sort of a sea lock and the hills um, and I can see a lot of seabirds and sometimes even a pot of harbour porpoise. So it really is the kind of dream writing view uh, as well as quite distracting a lot of the time. Whereas before when I was in Hertfordshire, all I could see was sort of, the street and the the train tracks in the distance so there wasn't quite as much um you know interesting things to keep an eye on when I was writing but my routine has stayed very much the same um I still like getting up and writing early in the morning the only thing that I've obviously canned um has been the commute into London so I used to write on the train when I commuted to work whereas now um I write full-time more or less at my desk so that has been a big adjustment, but a very pleasant one.
0: I'm always curious as well. When, when you, you're moving to Scotland and in your mind you have, well, this is fantastic. I love hiking. I love wild swimming. It gives me the perfect opportunities to do all that. But I just know that life gets in the way so much. So I wonder how often are you actually getting to do those things that you move there for?
2: Yes, again, such a good question and something that we really kind of talked about before we made the move because all our family are still uh, down in England. And our friends, obviously, and the sort of life that we had down there. And I just said to him, you know, if we are going to do this, we have to make sure we make the most of it. So I have that very annoying kind of answer, actually, which is pretty frequently I swim most days. Um, I've got a paddleboard and I go out on the days that I don't want to swim on the paddleboard. And we hike pretty much every time we have a a free weekend day Um, because the Arica Alps, aren't far at all from where we live so we are trying to make the most of it but we've only been here a year so maybe you know it's all still very new and exciting ask the same question again in a couple of years and let's see if we're still making the most of it but it kind of feels like we're on holiday um at the moment which is just yeah, really, I
0: feel so lucky. Oh, well, it's, Yeah, it seems idyllic. I mean, if you can live in a place where it feels like you're on holiday every day, I mean, you've not done much wrong, have you? Let me plonk you back in your writing space. You mentioned the, the the stuff on your desk. Is there anything, and you've got this lovely view, have you got anything around you on walls that lets you know what you're there to do? Maybe writing plans, kind of post-it notes, plot points, that kind of stuff?
2: Yeah, so I've got quite a lot of stuff tapped up on the walls, kind of either side of my desk. So to the left, I've got kind of a a cork board of like motivational or inspiring quotes, which I made a few years ago after a particularly tough rejection that I had um, on my writing journey. So it's kind of little reminders of why I was writing and why I should keep going. And then on the right, I've got a kind of mood board, I guess, for the novel I'm writing right now. So images and ideas I've noted down and quotes from kind of a few films and things to, that I've like collected um, during the sort of brainstorming period um, to help me sink into the right tone, I suppose. And yeah, a stack of many, many different kind of printed papers and mind maps and things. Um for the project i'm working on at the moment i have always liked to write first thing in the morning um, i am a morning person i used to wake up at the crack of dawn kind of before anyone in the house was awake to get my writing in before my job um before my husband was up and before the sun was up quite often i just really love the privacy of that i'm quite an anxious busy person you know always lots of to-do lists. Um, I worked in digital marketing, which meant a lot of emails and campaigns and social media notifications and just general noise, I guess. So the best writing I found got done before any of that noise could get in. So I would get up at the crack of dawn during lockdown um, to write. But even before that, as I said, when I commuted into London, I would often write on the train. And there was just something about using that dead time that really worked for me and also the motion of being on a train or in a moving car or something I just I really love writing when in motion and even though I I you know on a normal day I'll be sat in my office I still write really well on public transport um so whether that's because it's a learned behavior or something I don't know but normally I will wake up early still so not as early as I used to Um, but say sort of half past six or something like that and I'll head straight to my desk I will light my candle (laughs) a little bit of ritual to it I suppose and just start writing pretty much beginning where I left off the day before and I might read a bit of what came the day before to sort of get into the right headspace I'll write as much as I can in an hour and that's usually when my husband will get up and let my dog out of her crate and the first thing she does without fail is bowl up the stairs and push open the door to my office which usually means it's time to stop, time for breakfast. So I'll have a cup of tea, take her for a walk and then I'm usually back at my desk for around nine or so um, and I'll do a couple more hours of writing if possible and then just spend the rest of the day either editing or, you know, doing other writing related things, whether that's sort of a bit of publicity prep or planning for an event or something like that. So in terms of actual physical word count, novel writing, it's usually only two to three hours a day. Um, I find anything more than that and I sort of lose the flow. And I wonder whether that's because I used to write around, you know, a full time job on a commute. So writing in snatched time seems to work better for me when well, you know just sort of little and often
0: it's it's interesting that you are now writing full time and your your debut has come out i speak to some authors who perhaps have published four and and are still snatching at moments around their work day to try and get this done whereas quite early on you're, you're you've got the liberty of Eight hours or so. How how have you found that that transition of having loads more time in a much freer space because you've moved house to try and get stuff done?
2: Mm, It really has been a real kind of learning journey, I think. So at first, it was kind of like, "This is brilliant! How exciting! I can spend all day writing." Because when I was in, you know, marketing, and I'd get sort of nine o'clock when I'd have to log on to my my work emails and just that feeling of having to leave the novel behind was so frustrating it was like oh I just can't wait to hopefully one day make this a long-term you know a, a career that was always the hope and never ever thought it would actually come true so it's it's pretty mad that I now am living that but then as is the way with when you finally get your dream it was kind of like The reality of that was really hard, like writing eight hours a day. I think there was something about the creative juices flowing really well when you had snatched time. So quite early on, when I sort of made it full-time writer life, I would sit at my desk for, like you say, the full eight hours. And it was almost torture. It was kind of like, why can't I be this productive, um, you know, why am I not just flying through writing chapters and chapters and chapters. Now I have the time. And it was really interesting to observe that actually writing is a really fickle thing and like stories are so fickle. Um, And I had to really lay off myself actually, because it was almost like I'm lucky enough to have this dream. I'm lucky enough to support myself writing full time. I absolutely need to work really hard at this. And that means as many hours chained to my desk as before when I was you know working an office job so it's been a year of learning that that doesn't necessarily create the best work um and sometimes I can write a page sometimes it's a paragraph sometimes it might be 3,000 words in one day on like a really good prolific day um and I try not to sort of stress too much if it's not eight hours at my desk which quite frankly it, it isn't and I learned sort of after several months of trying to do that, that it just wasn't conducive um, to good work. So I try to just not think about it too much as long as the novel is moving forward, as long as there's something new each day in that Word document, then that's good and that counts. And I don't need to sort of, you know, torture myself for eight hours a day just because in my head, that's what I should be doing. There's a lot of shoulds and shouldn'ts, I think, moving from, writing as a side hustle to the full-time job.
0: Oh, I completely agree with that. I know that it can be quite mentally draining. I work freelance around various radio things, right? So if I've got a quiet day, I feel incredibly stressed that I'm not doing anything. And you're kind of sending emails for the point of saying that you've done something in that half an hour's worth of time. Exactly. In in How have you kind of learned to let yourself go with that mentally and be like, you know what, I've only done uh, half a page of writing today. It's not what I wanted, but I can pick up and go again tomorrow.
2: Mm, I think it's been a lot of trial and error and a lot of learning what works and what doesn't. Um, so I don't set word counts or anything anymore. And I tried to do that quite early on. Um, But I found that that pushed me to just make the writing more about the goal. So hitting that number rather than allowing the story and the character to drive it forward, which for me on reflection is far more important and creates sort of much better work. So hitting word counts was great for the word count, but it was not so great for the words I was producing. So there was a lot of time in that transition where I was just culling everything I wrote, more or less, you know. And I've had some big moments in this past sort of year where I've scrapped, you know, 85,000 words of this latest novel, for example, which sounds really painful, but actually kind of isn't because it's quite liberating to trust your intuition when you know it's not the quality you want. So I think it was just trying and failing lots of different things and feeling like actually forcing myself to write when it perhaps isn't working is in the long run going to be failing myself, my editor, my agent, my publisher, you know? So being kind of nicer and more compassionate to myself and my own routine and, and also just giving space to the story, which sounds really kind of mad, but I have found that the sort of routine forcing nature of whether that's time wise or word count wise just wasn't wasn't working so i sort of tried to return to that when i just write for the love and the joy um around my old job and that seems to be channeling the right kind of energy for the stronger writing if that kind of makes sense
0: of course and in practice and detail um with this trial and error that you've done what have you learned like practically that you can do that does give you a better chance of getting words down that day in in this year of a little bit of this and a little bit of that and just seeing what works?
2: Of course. So I've always um, made playlists for the projects that I'm working on. So I find that still has been really helpful. It's almost sinking into the tone or the atmosphere of the project you're working on and that takes a while it takes me a while to find the right tone and the right atmosphere I think I mentioned the mood boards I've got sort of tacked up on my wall taking time to do that sort of initial prep work before I start writing, um, I found that's really important um, the, I mentioned the candles. so there's an sort of element of ritual um, to when I sit down and write as well And just very simple things like putting my phone in a drawer, you know, not allowing myself to check my emails, that very much, no, we're in this writing space now, your candle is lit, your phone is away, there are no excuses, you have to crack on. But I, that isn't too hard for me just because I love doing it so much. And it's always been my favorite thing to do. So I'm not a huge procrastinator. I know there's a lot of writers who say that the last thing they want to do is write and they'll go and, you know, hoover the stairs or whatever, whatever it is. Um, But I'm quite greedy for my writing time. So I do, I really enjoy that ritual and that sort of situation I set up for myself to be like, okay, this is my two hours of writing this morning. I find that I'm very excited to sit down and do that. Um, And then if I get stuck or something, just sort of taking the pressure off I suppose um so not feeling as though you have to sit and write and sort of torture yourself over the page um I do a lot of running um which is often when I'll have my best ideas or when things will sort of come up for me if they've been a problem when I've been sort of niggling over on the page um my runs are often perpetuated with me sort of having to stop and write something down in the notes of my phone. So there's a lot of different bits of various projects sat uh, in the notes app on my phone. Um, and also, if I get really, really stuck, I find that journaling around the book really helps. So that might sound like super out there, but I'm a huge advocate of Elizabeth Gilbert and Big Magic and all her TED Talks on dealing with, with creativity in a way that kind of embraces fear and doubt and all the rest of it. So if I'm really stuck, I will just talk to the story or the kind of stuckness that I am in. I'll sort of try and engage with it, which sounds kind of mad, but it's it does feel like this living, breathing thing that's separate to myself and I want to collaborate it with it. So I might write it a letter, kind of wondering why it's not working or wondering what it is I'm trying to get to what is that story I'm trying to to tell um making space for it and I think being a full-time writer as well it's you know it's very solitary you don't really have colleagues you obviously have your agent and your editor but very much when you're getting that initial draft down on the page you're pretty much on your own so engaging with that story and asking it questions i find that really helps get me unstuck. um, And that's part of my ritual as well. Um, So I have an almost journal notebook that is separate to all the actual kind of plot points and other sort of research notes that I compile.
0: Is that journal left alone, really, after you've written in it? Is it something that you revisit?
2: no you're right I just leave it alone I kind of get the thinking and the and the discussion down on the page and then I very much put it in a drawer and only go back to it when I need to um it's almost like a little conversation that I'll be having with the novel that is very very private um and I only get it out when I really really need it which is often just when the the flow is not is not happening like I say coming back to that fickle thing And then when the flow is happening, it's like, oh, I don't need the journal. I know what I'm doing. I'm uh, turning up and doing my job and all is well. And then sometimes you just have days when that goes away. It's so weird. I've been writing, you know, for a long time, since I was little, throughout childhood and, you know, when I was a teenager. And ideas just came up kind of very slowly. They weren't triggered by anything in sort of particular. It could be images or conversations or just the sort of urge to talk about something in particular. Um, I really love stories about people and feelings. And I, as you say, as is very common um, to all writers, really, it's just, I was a a voracious reader. And I sort of knew that I always wanted to be a writer, but I was very realistic. And I kind of figured that's probably never going to happen. So the best plan B was to work with books Uh, in a different way. So I, after graduating, um, got a job in, well, digital communications and then sidestepped into publishing. Um, So I was working with stories and books sort of, you know, all the time and then just secretly trying to write one that I would want to read sort of by night or as we discussed sort of um, by early morning. And I had been writing novels since I'd graduated sort of seriously. Um, I had two books before Talking at Night um, that I learned a lot from, whether that was how not to write a novel or indeed how to write a novel. So Talking at Night was just third time lucky, I think. I think I'd learned a lot as I'd as i gone. Um, I'd been to lots of, over the years, lots of kind of um, events meeting or listening to other authors, you know, speak and talk about the craft. And I was just so interested in the whole thing. It was just so fascinating to me. And I spent all my sort of spare time learning about what it meant to be a writer. And a lot of that was facing up to rejection, dusting yourself off, trying again. And a lot of the rejections were really painful and really hard, but I came to the sort of realisation that even if I never got picked up, even if nobody ever wanted to read anything I had to write, I would still be doing it um, to the day I died just because I love doing it so much. So that when I had that sort of realisation, it was like, well, I'm just going to crack on. I'm just going to keep going. So by the time I started writing Talking at Night, it was, as I say, third time lucky, but... I think, A, I'd learned a lot with the two sort of failed books, if you like, the ones that are still in the drawer. But B, there was almost this feeling of, oh, just having to care less because I I had cared so much and every rejection felt so sort of visceral. And I just decided, you know, why? Why? Because I just love the actual process, and lo and behold, once you make that decision, that's when <laughs> an agent actually showed interest and, and signed me on the opening of Talking at Night. So it was a, a long process, I suppose, of just keeping on.
0: Yeah, I would be, um, I would be quite useless with, with that rejection. I, I think I don't love anything enough to carry on, kind of just doing it like that. And it, it's quite amazing to um, to persevere. You said that. You you had learned from your first two books, from the rejections. Uh, I guess it seems such a, 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 an obvious question. How did you go about doing that? It must, must take quite a lot of patient self-analysis to sit there. And when you've worked for ages on a book, you think it's the golden goose, right? You can't believe no one's kind of taking this because you're so in deep with it. How on earth did you manage to take a step back and admit that, maybe people were right in that this was not good enough and reflecting on what you could have done better how on earth did you do that
2: Mm, it was it was a really long process I suppose because also with the feedback I was getting from agents it was never as clear-cut as it would have been nice to have been you know it would be really great for agents and I'm sure some agents do um, sort of spell out exactly what was wrong with it or you know why they hadn't taken it on but I was getting sort of very positive rejections that were just saying, you know, or oh, this is better than most stuff we receive, try again next time, or oh, I didn't quite love it enough. And it was a bit like all oh, very, a lot of hot air. But along the sort of journey, there were a few key things. So, one of which sounds super obvious. But my first manuscript was just so long. I think it was about 140,000 words, which I think about now and I'm like, how did I think that was acceptable to submit something <laughs> that extreme? Um, so that sort of was a real learning that actually, you know, shorter, edited, so much better. So I learned to become a much better editor, um, much more ruthless with myself. And I think that was just over time, And, you know, getting the feedback that this manuscript is too long was a really helpful, necessary piece of feedback. Um, And then just kind of having more time to sort of read about the craft. You know, I read a lot about writing. Um, I went and did the Faber Academy course, which I don't think sort of changed me as a writer in in any sort of massive sense but as i say it just made me a much better editor um and it meant what i was then submitting to agents was much tighter um i became i became less fearful i think you know i was so as you say everything felt like the golden goose everything felt what if this is a really important paragraph or page and i'm cutting it and i just have no idea whether that was the right thing to do or not like everything i got down on paper felt important and then I got to a place where I felt like no it's not none of it's important it's all just it's all just words and stories and I I saved everything in a separate document so I never actually kind of deleted anything so then when when I became a lot more gung-ho about chopping and changing and much less precious about what was going on the page that was a game changer for me and I think literally Time was the only thing that could do that, time and practice. Um, and that's why those first two failed books were still so important, because had I not written those, talking at night would have probably been 140,000 words long. Um, so there was an element in in learning to edit myself and in learning to, I don't know, trust your intuition, I think. And I, I only managed to do that after years of, you know, practicing.
0: We'll be back with more from Claire in just a second. If you want to make the most of the fantastic offer from Plotter, who are sponsoring the show for a while, get to go.plotter.com slash routine. And you have the chance to sponsor this show too. If you have published something and finally got a book out there and you think it's kind of deserved more praise that it's got, because I know like publishing is a very tricky place to be because it can be both so lonely and so hectic, and um, if that's you, or well, let me do all the pushing for you. Let me plug away. You can make that happen by supporting the show at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. It's probably the easiest way to help us out over on our Patreon page just by pledging a little bit every month. It helps us carry on and bring you these chats with the best authors around as often as we can. For that, you get merch. There is bonus content. And as I say, there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show. I will give it the beans. I will give it the full read. Uh, I will really, really enthuse about whatever you've worked on that I'm sure is deserving of so much attention. You can be part of our community that we've got going on on the Patreon page, having chats, sharing ideas. Get to patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Let's get back to it then with Claire Daverly chatting about her new novel, Talking at Night. It's all about Will and Rosie, destined to be each other's great love story until a tragedy shatters their future. And it's gone down very well, received high praise from uh, Jojo Moyes and Fern Cotton and Harriet Evans. So we get right into the reads with the book. We talk about why, after some rejections, she followed her intuition to try something new, which then changed everything. Also, how she's finding going again, getting back to another story after the um, the, 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 the glory of this publication. And actually, let's, let's get back to it talking about this moment. Uh, it's something that Claire has dreamt of for so long after rejections, getting a book out there. But how does she strike the balance now between enjoying the moment and being as analytical with her writing as normal?
2: Oh, it's so hard. It's so hard to strike that balance. Um, because it, in, on one hand, like you say, it's, it's the dream. Like, it's incredible that Talking at Night is out there. And, you know, I've got wonderful readers reaching out to me and telling me how much, you know, they love the book. And I've got, you know, the book being published in however many countries. And that is just boggling to me and super exciting and I really really try to take the time to try and absorb that that has actually happened and it you know it's 18 months now after the book deal and the book's been out since July so sort of three months of actually being a published writer and it's it's amazing it's so exciting and so joyful but then the flip side of that is feeling the kind of pressure. An expectation now, not only from sort of your team, your your publishing team, but also from readers who are reaching out and saying such wonderful things, which you know often ends with "can't wait to see what you write next." And that is so the dream. The actual dream is to keep writing and to keep, you know, uh, telling stories that you hope people see some kind of value in. But the pressure and the expectation is really. I naively felt like it, it's no big deal because I'd already written two books before Talking at Night. So this isn't really book two, this is book four. But actually, no one saw those other two books. Nobody cared about those other books. So I was quite naive in thinking that there, that sort of noise, as positive as it is, would just not touch the sides and I'd be able to crack on, you know, as before. So I just feel like, again, it's it's part of that learning process Um, and also just the actual headspace has been really different so trying to plan and write a new novel while editing your sort of previous one so talking at night and indeed promoting it has been a really kind of new interesting journey Um, I used to just sort of grow out of my previous stories and feel like yeah it was it was time you know, to work on something new. Whereas talking at night is taking up a lot of headspace still. You know, I'm doing wonderful podcasts like this one or interviews in bookshops. And so you go from talking and thinking a lot about one book while trying to write another. And that's been a really strange shift. Um, And not to mention because you go through that experience of actually editing, you know, and copy editing and working with the team Um, which is amazing because you finally have a dialogue with people instead of just sitting alone you know wondering whether what you're producing is just complete drivel Um, but it means as well now I've been through that process there's a lot of second guessing around the writing you know you sort of in the back of your head you've got your editor's voice or whatever it might be Um, and it's taken over a year to step out of that and get back into writing mode I think which is about you know, more about flow and atmosphere um, and, and trusting that intuition that I've mentioned before.
0: So maybe this is confirmation bias on my end, very simply because I speak to a lot of crime writers. I feel like crime as a genre and thrillers do tend to pull in a lot of debut on authors. Now, that can't always be the case, right? Because there are loads of contemporary fiction which is based on love stories out there on the shelf so someone's got to be writing those and one of those people is you why did that as a like were you kind of focused on the genre it might sit or was it just that this was a good story that you wanted to tell and you would be drawn to any story regardless of the genre that it might sit in
2: yeah no absolutely I never thought about genre um I I love kind of reading uh, contemporary fiction. I love reading stories about people and relationships and not necessarily romantic relationships. Um, And I think thinking about genre can be quite a dangerous thing as a debut writer, unless you're, you know, really keen on writing a particular genre, whether that's, you know, sci-fi or fantasy or like you say, crime thrillers, which is great. And I I think often you tend to write what you read as well. Um, And I was reading a lot of sort of unplaceable stories, I suppose. Um, So there was a time when I felt like when I was getting a lot of rejections, and a lot of the rejections were sort of saying, oh, these books are too quiet, they're beautifully written, but we don't know where they'd sit in the market. There was a time when I thought maybe I need to be more strategic and think about genre but then when I did my writing course my tutor thankfully said to me absolutely not get that thought out of your head (laughs) he said just write what you want to write and it will it will come good and that was you know really good advice um so talking at night didn't start out in my head as I'm going to write a love story. I, as I said, wanted to write about people. I wanted to write about relationships. I wanted to write about mental health and the things we sort of say and don't say. And Will and Rosie, the two protagonists, were sort of the vehicle um, for all of that. So... Yeah, as mad as it sounds, I didn't set out to write a love story. It just kind of turned into a love story. And the two books that I'd written previously had not been love stories. They had been stories about people and um, families and, you know, just real life. So Talking at Night continued in that vein, I suppose, and just so happened to turn into um, a contemporary romance at the same time.
0: That it, it's amazing to have so many ideas of what you want the story to be and to explore themes. And, well, I want to touch on this and I want to talk about this and I want to talk about this, but ultimately it's a plot that drives the narrative along and allows you to explore all those ideas. What was the initial moment that you had for what would become the plot of this story, for what would drive Will and Rosie through talking at night? So
2: I never sort of come up with... There was no like, you know, amazing bolt out of the blue for this story. Um, You could probably tell the way I, I talk about writing that I'm always kind of feeling my way towards a story. Um, and Talking at Night started with the characters, like you rightly like said, you know, these voices of Will and Rosie. And they just kind of came up for me one day. You know, I couldn't even tell you when or how or sort of pinpoint it. And what's weird is I've obviously haven't had to be talking about this quite a lot in sort of recent months since the book came out. And so I've been sort of interrogating when that happened. And my husband is actually the one that said to me, I can remember you mentioning probably about six or seven years ago that you had this idea for this love story with these two characters. So that was, you know, six or seven years. That seems kind of mad. Um, so I just started scribbling things down you know conversations they'd have or scenes they'd share and the story just kind of took shape in my mind over many years and like I say I was writing other things at the time so I'm very much I'm quite focused when I'm working on a project I don't sort of and this may change in the future because I feel like every novel is sort of different and has its own shape and and feeling and it places its own sort of different demands on you but I was working on other things, and so the Will and the Rosie stuff was this kind of background that I would just get down and put it away for when the time was right. Um, So it kind of formed in the background, and then when the time was right, it really was right because I'd just been listening to them for so long that it almost fell out. So even though I'd been thinking about them for years, I wrote the first draft in in nine months um, just because I'd been – thinking about it for so long I suppose
0: what what came first in that instance with these characters Will and Rosie so they've been percolating away was how was it a case of you sitting down thinking I need to write I want to write another book now I've got these two kind of doing their own thing or kind of what they were doing so strong that you felt compelled that you needed to sit down and specifically tell their story now
2: Mm, well, it's a bit of an interesting one because I'd had sort of really close call with the previous novel. Um, so four agents had called in the full manuscript and one of those agents which turned into the agent I, I now have. Um, she actually phoned me, which was the first time I'd ever had, you know, proper contact other than just a, a an email rejection. And she spent, you know, an hour talking to me about the novel that she'd read. And, really enjoyed, but wasn't sure she could position it in the market. So we spent an hour sort of talking and, you know, it was it was such a productive, fantastic phone call, but I won't, you know, sugarcoat it. It was also really crushing because I'd spent so long on this other novel. And um, she sort of said, you know, you have two options here from my perspective. You either rework this novel that I've just read and, you know, try and make it more commercial as it were you know give me a hook give me a way to sell this or you just keep in touch and um let me know what you're working on next and so I hung up after that call and spent you know a good sort of six weeks or so really soul-searching you know what do I do and it was very tempting to just go back and rework the previous novel um, because I I felt like, you know, there was something there. And it was only when I sort of, I refused to sort of put pen to paper. I didn't want to rush anything. And it was only when I sort of relaxed into this idea that maybe it's time for something new. And I already knew what that was going to be because I'd been thinking about Will and Rosie for so long. So it was almost like this liberating idea of putting that novel that I'd finished away not having to rework it, but just diving into something new—that was exciting. And I feel like again, it goes back to following that gut feeling, that intuition. I was much more excited about starting something new with talking at night, and so that's what I did. And I, I got fifty pages down and um, sent them to this this agent who'd said I'd you know be interested in seeing anything that you write in the future. And what was mad was she signed me on just those 50 pages. And, you know, she said, I want to read more. And I said, well, I don't have any more. I've only got the opening. Um, but because she'd read that previous novel, she trusted me and took a risk on me. And so that's, that's what I did. I just, it was almost like <laughs> a rebound, an excellent rebound that really came good after the previous novel that hadn't worked out.
0: And... You're exploring these ideas with Will and Rosie. Uh, how much did you know of the story before you sat down to write it?
2: Mm, so there's always that question, isn't there, of whether you're a, a planner or a, or a pantser. And um, I always have this terrible joke about I'm somewhere between the two. So I sort of plan with my pants off. There you go. There's the terrible joke. <laughs> um Because I have to let the idea come. You know, the characters have to form first and they can't be rushed. I have tried to rush it and it it doesn't work. You can't force it. I have to be kind of very patient. So I had this idea. I knew who these characters were. I knew who Will and Rosie were. I was very kind of familiar with their chemistry um, because I'd been writing down scenes between them. But then I needed a shape of the story. So I will loosely plot out a story arc once I know who the characters are. So it's kind of a very vague frame to work with, but it's very flexible and it will often change as I write. So without spoilers, some really huge things happen in talking at night that were not planned for. They just kind of happened along the way. And I also didn't know the ending um, I let the characters kind of lead me towards it. again, that sounds really far out and you know, but it, it genuinely is the way of it. Sometimes I think that um, the characters can lead you to points you don't expect. So I plan very loosely to give me a sense of where I'm going, but at the same time, I need that freedom to just let the writing sort of find its way. So yeah, I, I began with a began with the voices, sketched out an arc. And more or less stuck to that arc, but things kind of happened along the way. And then about two thirds of the way through, I thought I knew how the book was going to end or I thought I should end it a certain way, shall we say. And um, about two thirds of the way through, it became very clear to me that I had to end it differently because the characters just weren't playing ball with the original idea.
0: And now moving on, You've learned quite a lot just in the process of writing full novels—one massive one—and they're not picked up, and then this one is picked up, and and you are exploring these ideas. I, I guess moving into your your second novel, and then on writing your third, how have you found that process of of going again and having a much clearer understanding of what agents, publishers, and readers want from you?
2: Hmm, it's. It's, I mean, it's been a, a what a privilege, you know, to be able to to be writing because it was a two book deal. So you know, I'm under contract to produce um, a, a book after Talking at Night, and that is incredible and the dream. So it feels a little bit like saying, "Oh, my diamond shoes are too tight." When you're <laughs> you're saying it's it's been tough, um, but in all honesty, it's you know with with, with difficulty. I think just because in one breath, it's so exciting. And you really, I really want to just keep producing good work. You know, I don't want to rush anything. I don't want to put a novel out there that doesn't quite reflect the quality, you know, that, that, you know, talking at night perhaps lives up to or or whatever that is. Um, So there's been all this kind of emotion. It's been a very jittery time of just feeling so lucky and so excited to move forward and write something else. But then also the nature of writing under contract and with readers who now expect things from you, um, almost absorbing all of that, like we were saying earlier, you know, allowing yourself to sort of enjoy that and bask in that after years of just never knowing whether it would go anywhere. But then also pretty much having to ignore it and shut it down because With all of that noise, there's no way that book is going to get written. Um, So it's kind of easing back into that very private headspace I had when nobody knew, apart from my husband, you know, that I was writing on the side. So taking all of that exciting noise, all of that stuff I've learned, as you say, from editors and agents and readers and locking it in a little box, (laughs) getting back at my desk and just, I'm here to do a job and that is to write the best story that I can. And um, that is often really scary and really hard to do when you've got all this input from outside. So I'm very much trying to strike that balance of I've learned a lot along the way, but knowing I'm going to still keep learning and hopefully still writing you know, books that people want to read. But that will only ever happen if I give myself the time and space and the quiet to do that. Um, So that's what I'm trying to do anyway.
0: And that's it for this week's writer's routine. Thank you so much to Claire Davoli for coming on the show. That brand new book is Talking at Night. It is out right now next week. We are chatting to Freya Berry, who's coming on the show, talking about her novel, The Birdcage Library. It's the follow-up to her debut, which was a BBC Radio 2 book club pick. So that's high praise. What has she done after? Uh, We'll find out chat to freya next week on this show in the meantime make sure you support us on patreon patreon.com forward slash writers and do make the most of that fantastic plotter deal that we've got go.plotter.com slash routine you can follow us on twitter we are at WritersPod. pod their ex i never get it right i was going so well too also you can get in contact with the show writersroutine.com use the uh, the contact form there and i will see you next week with freya berry until then bye